alaikum. Wa alaikum salam. How's it going, Leila? I'm good and so excited to have you, but I don't even want to introduce you because I don't think I would do you justice. Muna, how would you introduce yourself? Well, today, mostly I'm a mom. <laughs> you know, woke up early, fed the kids, and now they're having lunch and they're watching Shrek. So, uh, so that I can do this because my husband is actually on a farm. But I wear a lot of hats. Um, I also work as a chaplain um, privately. I, I worked institutionally also. Um, I make art. I make music and music videos. Um, yeah, so all of those things. I also write poetry. And yeah, I'm very interested in religion, um, theology, and philosophy, and I have a master's degree in ethics, in social ethics from Union Theological Seminary, and so that's always been a big passion of mine also. So you can understand why I didn't want to introduce you. I'd be like, this is Mona Haider, and she's a rapper, and I would just give you one dimension, <laughs> but that's one thing I admired about you when we got together recently was you're so in tune with all of your multiple dimensions, and it's I was, yeah, it's incredible. It makes it almost hard to define you as an external person. I appreciate that because it's taken me a long time to become comfortable with um, the dynamism that is my identity. Um, and I used to want and wish that I could be defined in a, in a short little <laughs> quip, in a short little sentence. And, you know, I actually got the feedback one time after a huge event that I did with thousands of people in the audience and um, some of the biggest names in journalism in the world. And the feedback I got from one of these major personalities was, you, know, you need to come up with sound bites. And I was like, <laughs> I just don't operate. I just believe that complexity is a sweet spot that allows for tenderness and ease and that a multitude of experience is always healthy for all of us. And so I'm trying to live by that and um, not shrink back into my shadow, my shadow work, you know, which is to want to fit into the box and want to be accepted and acceptable. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm still working on it. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny when I'm like, I hate to make everything a gender thing, but this is a gender thing. I think that as women too, um, sometimes being a multi-hyphenate doesn't help. And I experienced this early in WISE when we started the company when I was traveling for work a ton and I, I would post pictures to Instagram. This is like years and years ago. And they'd always be cool pics, but like I wouldn't say that I'm like implementing a trucking company in Oklahoma. It would just be me on like some pretty river or something, right? And I actually had a very, very, very early advisor ask our CEO, is Layla leaving? Like her Instagram seems pretty popping. And I was like, you've mm. got to be kidding me. Like you, but it just really baffled me that that was the perception because I was able to take pretty photos and enjoy myself when I was on site with clients. Yeah, I think social media is a whole conversation because either you're doing too much or you're not doing enough or like aren't you worried about evil eye or, you know, you're actually not living a good life if you're not posting about it constantly. There's no balance as far as I'm concerned at this point. You know, there's too many people like with addictions, you know, myself included and having to work through that and, 
and, and having to show up in a public space for folks who don't even know you, you know, whether who don't know you personally, like I can't even imagine you trying to live a balanced life while also like running a company. <laughs> like, I, I mean, people must have the craziest things to say to you. I can't even imagine. Yeah, it's, it's bizarre. It's something I'm constantly thinking about, but I, that's why I was struck by the multi-hyphenateness of you is that's something I'm trying to just embrace and lean into and be like, that's okay. I'm really good at managing my time. Like, why am I lying about that? You know, like, yeah, alhamdulillah, right? So mm-hmm. anyhow, I'm going to, um, where were you born? I was born in Riyadh in Saudi Arabia. Really? <laughs> I know. It's really interesting. Yep. That is where I was born, right before Harb al-Khalij, right before the Gulf War. Um, and then, yeah, the Gulf War happened and my parents were kind of like, okay, we got we to gotta go. Um, my, my folks emigrated to the U.S. in 1971. Um, in December, I believe, of, of 1970, or 1970 or 71. I always get it wrong. And then my sister, who's a historian, is always like, Mona, get it right. <laughs> She's like, these things go down in history. <laughs> She's like, you're saying these things publicly and they're being recorded. <laughs> so, so that's my brain right now at this point. I'm sorry. No, for Either what it's worth. 1970 or 71. <laughs> for what it's worth, like, I, I don't know if my dad came in the late 60s or the mid 70s. But I know it's that range and I always forget, but I'm pretty sure it's the late 60s because I've seen them on like diplomas and I've asked him, but we have, mashallah, a lot of siblings. So like mm-hmm. I, I get confused. So anyways, it's funny you mentioned that because I actually, well, it's, it's interesting because I rarely meet Muslims who have been here for that long. I think the waves mm-hmm. tended to come with turmoil um, and the various wars. And But there are folks who came while well, the Middle East was maybe in different shape and pan-Arabism was thriving. And my family kind of falls into that bucket to a certain extent, like Saddam was still the dictator, yada, yada, yada. Mm-hmm. But it definitely was earlier. So, I mean, my, my at this point, I think my dad is – I mean, I know my dad has been in America and my mom too for much longer than they lived in Baghdad. Mm-hmm. Same. Yeah, my parents have been here. Over, my mom now – my father has since passed away, Alayhamal, but Alayhamal. over 50 years. So – yeah, they started out in Chicago, and then they moved to Detroit, and then to Flint. And my siblings were around high school age, and my older siblings were also a lot of kids. And my my parents were like, all right, these kids need to learn a little Arabi. They need to like focus on their religion a little bit. We've spent too much time here. Because, of course, it was that typical immigrant story of like, you know, we're just going to come for a little while, save up some money, send, be able to send money back home, take care of the family. And then, you know, it snowballs into years and decades and beyond that. So, yeah, you know, it was Saudi, funny enough, even though all my older siblings were born in the States. And we, it's funny how many people have that typical immigrant story, including myself, by the way. My parents were fully planning to go back to Baghdad. And what happened was... Um, I think there was a request at this point. Saddam was still the dictator and my dad had made a request to travel. He was like, okay, if I'm going to live in Iraq and we want, we want to go back to teach our kids, I have to be able to travel for conferences and I need to live in Baghdad. Mm-hmm. And those two requests were rejected. So he's like, nah, I'm just going to stay in America and move from Erie, Pennsylvania to California, which is a, you know, very different life. Dude, but- <laughs> y'all did it right though. Yeah. Amazing. <laughs> We've gone from here like parents, Flint, Michigan. Come on. <laughs> like, yeah. What were you thinking? 
talking? No, my dad, literally, he was driving with my brothers. They were probably one and two at the time and the car skid on ice. And he's like, what the heck are we doing here? Packed up the car and moved to California. Like literally that's the whole story. (laughs) Mad props to your dad. But I wonder, like, I think how would we have been different? I don't know. My mom is a forest, mashallah. And like my mom builds community with her where she goes. I don't think she's one to assimilate. So we may have ended up the exact same. But I do wonder, mm-hmm. it would have been very different living in Erie, Pennsylvania versus coastal California, you know? Yeah. I feel like our parents are very similar. You just basically described my mom too. So, so I feel I- like they had to be that way in order to, you know, really survive in these spaces. They definitely had to, but also I can usually tell women raised by moms like my own. It may sound mm-hmm. weird. So like no, I, I, I had a hunch when he started talking about your mom. There's I was a like, vibe for sure. I, I had a hunch. I, they, they come out with a very specific type of girl, which I usually tend to like because they're like me, <laughs> a little narcissistic, but whatever. Um, no, I'm into it, you know, game, game, recognized game, as they say. Right. And where's your fa- where was your family before Sarodia? Damascus in Damascus. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, my parents were born and raised in Damascus, but – Directly before Saudi was um, Detroit and Flint. Awesome. Um, and how Sorry, many siblings? That timeline was like very confusing. <laughs> Something between 1970 and 1971, somewhere between. Flint okay, they and were raised. They were raised in Damascus. They moved to Chicago, then to Detroit, then to Flint, then to Saudi Arabia, then back to Flint. Oh, huh? Wild. But um, how many siblings are you guys? We're eight. We're four girls and four boys. Are you right in the middle? Are you like number four-ish? I'm not. I'm actually number seven. Really? Ah, oh, you did not come <laughs> off as the youngest to me. Yeah, well, you know, there's a big generational gap, and my mom really thought she was done. So I think <laughs> in a way, <laughs> you know, we were we were raised to be um, very independent, me and my younger sister, because you know, our parents had our, their, their own stuff going on. And my mom was, she, she started a school and wait, really? mm -hmm, Mine too. (laughs) Wait, go ahead. Keep talking. (laughs) Yeah. She helped to found the local Islamic school, which she worked at up until this year, actually. Um, she just retired since my dad's passing away at Hamel. And then, um, basically, yeah, she, she, she went to college and she was in college at the time, and she was like, yeah, um, you know, you guys, you have a bunch of older siblings, and they're going to help take care of y'all. And it was a very intergenerational, like, raising, rearing kind of a vibe. Which is somebody with young kids now sounds the bomb. I wish Camila was 16 and helping me raise Lisa. <laughs> That'd be great. I know. Nevertheless. Yeah, nevertheless. Like my oldest sister. What number are you? I'm four. Okay. And there's 13 years, I think, I think 13 years between the oldest and the youngest, something like that. Okay. I'm also yeah, we not have a historian. 16. We have 16 <laughs> years between, or 18, yeah. sorry. Yeah, 18 years between the youngest and the oldest in our family. That's incredible. And my, so my mom started an Islamic school in 1994, full-time, like regular school and Islamic school. She still runs it. Um, and Dude, I think ours was the same year. <laughs> <laughs> Very weird. I'm telling you, I can tell women who were raised by women like my mom. I just know you yeah. people. And there's there's a bunch yeah. of us, by the way. There's like a group, and we're all huh. like daughters of educators, and they tend to be strong, and they tend to have like worked quite a bit throughout their lives, and they tend to be mission driven. And in my mm-hmm. case, they tend to not understand why my job is so capital driven. But that's another <laughs> story. <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> but like, like how much initiative I take on the flip side. Mm-hmm. 
but cool. You so, gotta take what you can get, man. <laughs> I know. I'm like, Mama, listen, like I, I definitely got your resourcefulness. And like my mom is mm-hmm. scrappy, but like very sharp. And I, I think I've Dude, picked some of those same. up. But mm-hmm. the philanthropy I'm, I'm working on, inshallah, we'll get there. <laughs> I mean, she, so she gives all of her. She gives all of her. It's incredible. I'm like, I know. It, how do you make them like that? I don't know. But um, Well, I, I think we have a, a profound blessing of personal development that um, a lot of our folks didn't have. And even being able to look at that, you know, is such a blessing. Yeah. And it's. It really is deep, um, and there's there's a lot of work <laughs> in therapy that has to happen in order to not give your whole self away and make those choices rather than live your life based on the expectations of society, which is, you know, they didn't even a lot of them didn't even know they had a choice. Hmm. And and then there's another element too in terms of I would say like devotion. I think that faith is maybe taught differently or consumed differently. And maybe the faith of somebody who's left one country and is assimilating in another. And there's like um, a devotion attached to maybe more communal representation, whereas I've focused a lot more on individual representation for whatever reasons. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and may- maybe it's a little bit less of like a, a fear where I'm like, ah, I'm in California. Who cares if I'm Muslim? Like I am who I am. Take me as I am. I'm unapologetic. Mm-hmm. Whereas my mom's mentality was, hold up, like, I'm in this country, Adhan's not going off, I don't know how my kids are going to get raised, I need to solve this. I'm just going to start a school and, like, leave my dentistry career. Wow, your mom was a dentist. Yeah, oh, she's, wow. uh, mashallah, a whole orthodontist. She will tell you that she is still okay. licensed. <laughs> she, she will remind <laughs> you <laughs> at any opportunity that she's still licensed and she still has her business cards, but I would mashallah. never let her touch my teeth. I remind her. <laughs> There's no way. Oh my God. <laughs> There's no way. But she does, she's good at consulting. She still understands things if I think I need dental work. And she's like, yep, do that. So that's that's good. Mm-hmm. But um, okay, so you're you're number seven out of eight. You and your sister grow up in Flint effectively. You moved there when you're how old? Um, I was two years old. So that's your home. I mean, you lived there for a long time. hmm Yeah, up until I was 24. So you I went am. to school there, you did all the things. Everything, yeah. I, I went to um, public school, and then the Islamic school started. So we, we went to the Islamic school until eighth grade, and then public high school in, in Flint. And then I even stayed home for college. I went to the University of Michigan, Flint. Huh. And um, what did you study? English. <laughs> what did you think you were going to be? Um, I was already performing poetry at that point, funny enough, and I was already basically supporting myself doing that uh, in a big way, alhamdulillah. I was really blessed to figure out that I was creative from a young age. And, you know, I wouldn't necessarily say it was encouraged, but I wasn't discouraged. Hmm. You know, it wasn't until I was older um, and people were like, well, what are you actually going to do with your life? You know, rather than, you know, you pursuing this hobby, now you need to buckle down and really figure out what you're going to do. So that those conversations didn't happen until I, you know, until I was a little older and I was around like, I would say 16, 17. And, you know, the, 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 the guys would be coming to our home, you know, the khatsabin. And, and it was right around that time when those questions started being asked. 
you know, like if you can get married, you can, you can also figure out like what you're actually going to do with your life. So all of that happened right around then. And so you're in Flint and you figure out how to effectively make a living off of poetry. (laughs) And, um, what happened after that? Well, I, I wouldn't say I figured it out. I would say I was taught and I, I was very blessed to be able to go to downtown Flint and be taught by the brilliant black community that is so alive and thriving. Um, the art community downtown was just this place of life, this place of aliveness, this place of brilliance. And I had the opportunity to watch these poetry shows since I was like, you know, I want to say like 13, 14 years old is when I started going. And, you know, very quickly it was like, well, I write poetry. And friends of mine would be like, well, don't you write poetry? <laughs> you know, and, and, and I, I actually got signed up for a, an open mic and I did really, really bad. You know, it wasn't this thing that I was naturally gifted at, but from observation and then from being taken under the, under the wing of a few different people, one person namely is um, my professor, uh, Tracy Curry, Dr. Tracy Curry. She created an entire class just called spoken word poetry because a few of us were interested in, you know, what would it be like to study this thing as a real class and she devoted herself to us in a way that was sort of unheard of, you know, in, in a college setting. And she created a space where we could really learn and explore and expand our, our creative selves. And I really credit her and the Flint community itself for teaching me how to use my voice um, as, this, as this tool for expression and liberation. It's so cool that you had such great mentorship. And is that about when you decided you wanted to also sing? Or how did that come into the mix? Was that later? How did that transition happen? No, I I didn't even consider that um, ever. Uh, I would talk about it as a joke, um, as something like, haha, wouldn't it be funny? And the deep down reality was it was uh, something that I deeply desired as just a real lover of hip hop and, you know, hip hop and R&B being the, being the ambient sound of Flint, Michigan. And it was something that I loved so profoundly and believed it was haram because it was, I was told it was haram. You know, this thing that I loved so deeply, I was told was sinful. And so that was, that was a, that was a rough thing to get over. I'm not going to lie. It was, it took me close to a decade to be like, okay, these jokes are actually real. I do want to pursue music. I do have this deep love for rhyme and rhythm and putting the two together outside of the confines of poetry. And it took me a while to, I would say, be courageous enough to um, tell my family (laughs) that I was going to do this um, and then share it with the world because I'd been working on it for a while before I, I actually shared my first song. 
Yeah, it's an interesting journey, definitely, like the music journey. And I think all of us, have, many of us have experienced it in some way and kind of come to our own conclusions on where we fall. Um, mm -hmm. And was this alongside your study in religious education? And I, I kind of have a motive in asking that question. And it yeah. is, I see people transforming often in ways they didn't expect when they formally study theology. Yes, definitely. Um, after I graduated college, um, I actually moved to Syria. I moved to Sham. Really? And I. <laughs> what, yeah. what was this? <laughs> I um, this was in the year two thousand and um, nine, two thousand ten. So things were still stable there. They weren't mm -hmm. like. Yeah, like this is this is pre um, struggle and yeah, all of that. Um, Whew, yeah, it was it was before all that. And I was so lucky to have family there who I could stay with and live with while I attended Jama Abunur. And I wasn't there very long um, before my father actually became ill and I had to come back. I was there just under a year. And it was at that time that I was able to really not just not just study, but also connect with my family who is still there um, and learn that a lot of what we took on as American Muslims was a certain kind of propaganda um, from the Gulf states. And a lot of it was their culture and not actually anything to do with Islam itself. And really getting down to the nitty-gritty within Aqidah specifically, um, and then also with Fiqh, I was able to clarify my own feelings and my own thoughts on things um, because the resources were right there in front of me. And there's no hierarchy. You know, you're not asking the sheikh to tell you their opinion. Here's an entire chain of transmission of opinions um, from, you know, as far back as the time of the Prophet all the way to, you know, today. And I don't need any, <laughs> you know, and they all have their political bends, you know, and, and looking at things within their context and being able to sit with teachers who understood those cultural contexts and say, this is why this opinion came out. This is why this ruling was happening. This is why, you know, there was a war. And so this opinion needed to be said in this way. And for me, it was like, it was such a, a moment of education leading to true liberation. I, I see that journey happen a lot in theology schools. Um, mm -hmm. And I think people tend to be caught off guard by it. Like they, they go in anticipating a certain body of knowledge and expect it to come out a certain way. And my experience with my friends who have gone to study theology is it ends up taking an unexpected turn because I think of the access to knowledge. I also like having been born and raised in America. And for me personally, I can colloquially speak Arabic, but I don't have a really solid grasp of the text. So a lot of my understanding of faith is transmitted, right? There's always a middle person, maybe multiple middle people. Maybe it's a middle person or another, or another middle person. I think that's starting to shift now, but that's definitely probably the root of, of lots of my own struggles, um, not unlike yours. 
in ter- when you're talking about music, but it is it is an interesting dynamic. But I, I think it's starting to shift. Like I think there's more materials and resources being available in English, so people can separate themselves from anything that is politically grounded or even debatable. You know, things aren't necessarily presented as debatable. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are a lot of things that are not in the Quran, right? Like we're, <laughs> we're relying on hadith, we're relying on stories, we're relying on things that were orated for a very long time before they were written down. Um, I didn't study faith. I don't think I have it in me, but I definitely believe in critical thinking. Everybody has it in them. That's, it's been so, um, what is the word? There's so much gatekeeping around religion and it's, it's so wrong. And the reason it, it, it actually infuriates me um, because we're, we are taught that we don't have it in us. We don't have the capacity to study these things because of one reason or another. But the ultimate reality is the gatekeepers are the patriarchy. Mm. And we have been taught that we don't deserve access. We don't... Mm. Um, you know, especially like when we're on our periods, when we're bleeding, when we're on our moon, however you, you choose to say that experience, you know, we have been taught that, you know, that that excludes us from our tradition hmm. for that time. And that alone is a is a psychic, psychological violence. Huh. And it has it has conditioned us to, you know, put up walls around Dean and to say that, you know, because I can't access it at these certain points, then Lofty. I am. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and maybe, you know, because I do have these times in my life that then somehow that actually does make me naqisa, you know, which is a hadith that they use that women are are they lack something that men have and it's improperly understood it's improperly transmitted it's improperly translated and you know it you do have the capacity i hope you you um challenge that belief within yourself that you know this is for everybody this is literally for all of us that rasul sallam you know, what Allah says about him, for all the worlds. And you are in all the worlds. You know, the Rasul is for you, just like he's for Sheikh so-and-so. You know, I love that framing because one of the beautiful foundations of the faith is accessibility. I mean, so I, I studied architecture. One of the most remarkable things to me is that the first masjid was just a plot of dirt with like, you know, a, a, a square etched out in it. And it was, it's actually a very important message, right? It's like, it doesn't matter where you are. God is everywhere. You can pray anywhere. You don't have to be in an environment where you're constantly giving to build a really beautiful building. While that's fine, that's a choice, right? Like you, your masjid can be anywhere that is clean. And so that is such a deep message in accessibility. And I think what you're describing is an accessibility which has been gatekept a bit, which actually resonates quite a bit. And, and like just it makes your music story that much more understandable for me because I think we all went through really similar journeys. Um, and I'm very creative. I'm very musical. I wish I played an instrument. I didn't. My parents stopped with me. They wasted all their money on the top three who are not creative. <laughs> Big mistake. 
Oh my god. Yeah, and I'm like, you should have put it on me and the youngest. We would have done great, but that's okay. There's he's, still he's time, himself. girl. There's yeah, still time. Eventually, but I, I that was something I also grappled with, and I like I, I love music. I I love mm-hmm. being able to zone out and listen to something and just kind of get in my thoughts. It's a really big part of who I am, and it definitely took me also years to shed the idea that there was sin associated with it. Yeah. But I also did not make a rap video, so let's talk about that. <laughs> it could be a lot longer than that, so I, be, I hear you. Um, what was yeah. At what point did you – just tell me the story. I'm not even going to ask questions. Let's talk about when Hyder the rapper. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's funny. Um, I still get laughs when, you know, people ask me what I do and I say I'm an artist and, you know, they keep pushing and – it comes out that I'm a rapper. I don't just share that with everybody I meet on the street because it sounds pretentious. <laughs> it sounds pretentious sometimes, or it sounds, you know, to some people, I think it sounds um, like a joke. And I've realized that there's a lot of anti blackness mm. uh, around people's perceptions of when I say I'm a rapper. Um, because they feel like it's, um, it's like, a it's, it's like I'm condescending myself or I'm putting mm-hmm. myself down. I'm denigrating myself by associating myself with that. And for me, it couldn't be further from the truth. You know, I, I truly see hip hop as a social tool for liberation. Um, and I see Islam in the same framework in the same way and for me they go hand in hand and when I decided I'm not going to (laughs) I'm not going to let people dictate to me the way that I want to express my heart and my art anymore um, I you know it became clear I was going to do music Hmm. and I I called up some friends here in Flint and I said, hey, like I'm really interested in doing music, but I don't even know where to start. You know, I, I've i only ever done poetry. I don't know how, I don't know how to do anything. You know, I'm starting from zero. I'm starting from scratch. And a friend actually um, was, was excited for me and uh, was like, yeah, come out. I'm going to set you up in this studio with friends and it's going to be chill and we're going to go slow and we're going to just explore and see how things go. And that friend's name is Tunde Olani Ran, who's an amazing um, Flint-based artist with an incredible um, catalog himself. And I was just, yeah, I was very gently kind of guided again by a bunch of like almost like a collective of artists at that time. And it was beautiful. Um, and Tunde and I co-wrote Wrap My Hijab. And that was one of the first <laughs> songs that we actually wrote start to finish. You know, we, we worked on a bunch of other stuff. A lot of it, um, you know, I chose not to release. But uh, Wrap My Hijab, I just always had this sense that if I put that song out, it was going to do something. And Tunde was like, nah, <laughs> you know, like it's your first song. Like, <laughs> you know, like have like, you know, like just like, 
<laughs> no, no. He didn't want me to be disappointed. Yeah. You know, he just wanted me to be like, yeah, put it out and like see what happens. But don't set yourself up for disappointment. You but know, it's with- funny. If you would have told me, I would have been like, yeah, this is going to blow up. So there's <laughs> definitely like a Muslim female context attached to it. Yeah. And I just knew, you know, I just knew the hunger I felt myself for um, a celebration song, you know, a song that was really like, (laughs) I was about to swear, but um, a song that was just unscrupulous, you know, just like excited and a celebration of hijab and being like, you know, whether you like this or not, this is who I am and this is who I choose to be, you know, and and just saying those things plain. And uh, yeah, so it was exciting for me to be able to put that feeling into words through music. And it, you know, it took a lot of work. Like it wasn't, it wasn't natural. It wasn't organic for me to try to fit my poetry into bars. Mm. Um, it took a lot of work. It took a lot of finesse. Um, and you know, it, it, it wasn't easy, you know? So I I wasn't like naturally gifted at (laughs) writing bars, (laughs) Mm -hmm. but it, you know, with time and with discipline and I think with good, good people around me who were willing to like, you know, laugh with me at my mistakes and be like, no, no, like, here you go, baby. Like, let's try again, <laughs> you know, and, and, and just going slow and being dedicated to the craft and saying like, I'm going to listen to X number of songs today just to hear and just to like break apart the pieces and to look at how this actually comes together um, and studying. And, you know, it, it came together. And so you write this song and you record it and you decide after you record it, I'm going to make a video and go all out? Or what was the process after you finally got the bars right and got the song right and recorded it? Yeah, so I was in Detroit actually at Assemble Sound, and we recorded it there. And um, it was really interesting because I had the song. It was in my pocket. It was ready to go. Um, But for whatever reason, I just didn't feel like we were ready to put it out. I just... I didn't want to put it out just audio only. Um, and for whatever reason, I just never recorded. I just never shot the video. And then I went to Standing Rock. And I always get emotion, emotional telling this story. But I got to Standing Rock and I'm seven months pregnant. And something in me... Um, was like, you need to go. You need to go to Standing Rock. And I was in grad school at the time. I was working at NYU as a chaplain. I was doing hella stuff, but I was just like, I need to go. I get there and I'm like, what the hell am I doing here? There's no like, I didn't bring a tent. I planned on sleeping in the car. Um, It's a huge, huge camp, you know, thousands, hundreds of thousands of people. Like imagine Coachella, but no glam. No, um, like, you know, people with money. <laughs> it's like, you know, it's just people who, who care and who, who want literally the community there at Standing Rock, the Sioux tribe were just like, we just want people to come pray with us. Mm. And that just resonated so deeply in my heart. And I was like, Sebastian, who was my husband, I was like, baby, I got to go. Like, if the call is to come pray, 
I got to go. And so when I got there, I was like, what the hell is wrong with me? I'm seven months pregnant. Like, this is so irresponsible. I'm in grad school. Like, what am I doing? And the first thing that happens is I get up to a tent and um, there's this woman and I ask her like, hey, where am I supposed to go? Like, if I want to help out in, in whatever ways I can. And she looks at me and she looks at my belly and she lays her hands on my belly and she goes, oh, look, you brought that good medicine. Mm. And I can't even tell you what that did to me. Like it just clarified that I had done something for God, you know, like I had come to pray with people who are calling us to come pray with them. And it was for God. And I was questioning whether I was doing the right thing or not. And here's this affirmation, you know, here's the medicine. This is the medicine we need here at Standing Rock. Mm -hmm. You know, and she's like, you're not going anywhere near the front lines. (laughs) (laughs) You're not going anywhere near the, you know, the rubber bullets and the sound cannons and all that stuff. She's like, you're going to go straight to the kitchen and you're going to (laughs) cook. So I spent my entire time at Standing Rock cooking. And which is how long was that? that? How long was that? Just a week. Yeah. And you know, it was beautiful. I I actually ran into the the crowd that came from Zaytuna College. So that was super cute. And I made a lot of like genuine deep heart connections, which was amazing. But when she laid her hands on my belly and she said, oh, look, you brought that good medicine. I realized I was telling this story to myself about shooting this music video. And I was waiting to have my baby. It was only two months away, right? Like eight weeks, you know. And I was waiting f- to drop the baby weight and to get cute again. Mm. And then I was like, you know, we were already talking about it. We were talking about the plans. We were talking Mm. about what we were going to do. And I was like, this is the medicine. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, I just put my hands on my belly and I had a moment. I was like, this is the medicine. And I called up Tunde and I was like, hey, this is the medicine. And Tunde's (laughs) like, what? It's like, are you okay? (laughs) What's going on? Um, But, yeah, I just knew. And I knew I was doing something um, subversive, you know, that pregnancy isn't something that, especially as a mahajaba, you know, like we're taught, like the Spanish word for pregnancy, you know, embarazada. It's like we, we hold that in our culture so deep as Arabs also of like it's something to be embarrassed of. Mm. It's something shameful. You know, like you had sex, you know, you're, you're, you're in this other space. When I was doing so much work to try and decolonize my ways of thinking, my ways of feeling, that I was like, I need to shoot this video while I'm the heaviest I've ever been, while I feel the least beautiful <laughs> I've ever felt. And, you know, I need to decolonize that part of myself. I need to challenge those 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 things that I believed at the time or that I felt at the time, at least subconsciously. 
and I need to bring them into the consciousness, into my consciousness and my conscious reality, and I need to shoot this video now. So I got back to New York where I was living at the time. Um, within a week, we got the crew together. We shot the video. Um, between Tunde and I, we, we, you know, came up with a concept. We asked for favors from all kinds of different people. I brought in El Tawam, who are the amazing dancers in the video from Minnesota. And I was just like, like, we just are going to do this by the seat of our pants and by the grace of God. <laughs> and we did it with no budget and, you know, a donation of the space from the Arab American um, Museum in Dearborn and a couple different spaces in Detroit. And it was just like, it was kind of a miraculous thing. Like, it's hard to even explain, you know, it's, it was just this thing that flowed. And yeah. And so you finish this, it gets done. A week is incredible. No budget's incredible. <laughs> and you you upload it. And so like I've been through this experience before, so I'm curious about yours. When you upload it and you're kind of curious if anything's gonna happen and twenty four hours later or whatever period of time later, you're like, Oh my gosh, like this is culturally significant. Let's yeah. let's talk through that and kind of the feelings that you went through because for me it was it was actually very hard before it became easy, um, mm -hmm. and I questioned and I wanted to take it down. This is with Mipster's video and I wanted to take it down. Mm -hmm. I was like, "What do we do? Are we crazy?" And people were attacking me before they became positive about it. Mm -hmm. What was that experience like for you between upload and realization of like, "Oh yeah, I was right. I struck a chord." Yeah, um, it was immediate. You know, the response was immediate. It was. Within 24 hours, we were hitting hundreds of thousands of views. And I i mean, I couldn't believe it. I thought it was going to do something, but I didn't know that was the something it was going to do. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know? I just thought it was going to be like within the community kind of big. But then it hit Indonesia and Malaysia and, you know, um, India and Pakistan. And um, that's when it really like went viral. But and and Africa actually a lot of west africans really identified with it so when it went global and when it started getting shares in the international community that's when actually the american muslim community was like oh hold on <laughs> <laughs> we don't hate this her <laughs> is, yeah this is this is interesting but leila let me tell you um between the time we shot it and the time uh it took to edit and, the, you know, when we uploaded, I had had the baby. <laughs> and so I was, I was days postpartum. Are you kidding me? No. I, Rumi was a few days old. <laughs> and I was like, let me post this video. And I had C-sections. Oh, so, tough recovery. <laughs> yeah. I'm in like day four of recovery and oh. I post this video and I'm not even joking I'm still on pain meds I'm like on drugs the postpartum depression is just starting to hit and like I'm not talking about baby blues I'm talking about like legit postpartum depression and I was just numb I was like oh this is interesting <laughs> I was in an altered state yeah, I, I can't I get even it. I've been there I get it you're just I was nothing registers yeah, I was like, what? It was bizarre. Like, I don't really care. My body's been torn open. Like, this is I really did not my care. My mind is not there right now. I've, I've been I, there. 
I did all these interviews, which I do not recall at this point. <laughs> and people were asking me, how do you feel about it going viral? And I'm like, yeah, it's okay. Like, cool. You know, it didn't strike me as like a thing. Um, and so that was just like, it was almost like an otherworldly experience to go through like while postpartum, you know, all the hormones plus the pain meds and breastfeeding and, you know, night feedings and not sleeping and also grad school. (laughs) So it was, it was really strange. It was, and I, and I think I believe deeply in the wisdom of God having that happen at that time. Um, because I think it was so gentle on me. It was so gentle. Like I was reading comments, but I can honestly say that I wasn't having like adrenal responses yeah. in my body to people's comments the way that I do now. Um, I was just like, okay, they didn't like it, I guess. <laughs> That really is a blessing because the first time that you're exposed, it really is like standing naked in front of a room and people yeah. are like, first people Thank are like, God I was on drugs. Literally, <laughs> literally because they're like, you should die, you're a horrible person. Then people are like, oh my gosh. Oh girl, I was getting I death threats. You and you're like, what is happening here? Like, yeah. I don't know what's happening. I was getting marriage proposals and death threats and all, <laughs> all I'm like, <laughs> literally, it was like oh, every good thing and every bad thing. But it's wild. It's wild because so like, I, I mean, I, I will speak. It's it so rare to talk to someone who like really gets it. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's I, like very I'm, affirming. I you know, I'm telling you, I, there's just a lot. In, it's the Muslim mom Islamic school thing, I'm telling you. Mm-hmm. But it's also like it. a point that I realized about myself applies to you in many ways. We're like, as hijabis, we are often boxed, right? And like recently, very recently, we are athletically represented and accepted. Professionally, people are like, yeah, they can be smart. Academically, people are like, yeah, this can be like a notable hijabi professor. Culturally, no. Like that's when that's when people really become mm-hmm. fascinated and they want to interview you about it and they laugh when they say you're a rapper. But that that kind of cultural hijabis as cultural representation of whatever culture, it's usually an amalgamation of multiple cultures, is still too far away from the submissive, dominated, orientalist view of Muslim women. And mm-hmm. like I experience that all the time. Like things that shouldn't be incredible are incredible. And yes, I think your video is incredible for sure. But like, I think the message being delivered for the first time at that scale on that platform definitely gave it a huge edge or advantage, which honestly is like a white passing Arab without hijab, you maybe wouldn't have had that, that leg up. It may have taken longer, taken longer. Yeah. And, and that's a critique that I definitely feel like myself and have said many times, especially on like panels where people are trying to give me all the props. I'm like, listen, you know, the only reason it was so radical in the moment was because I wasn't black. Let's be really honest. If I was a black muhajiba doing that, I don't think it would have gotten the kind of traction in the world, Mm. um, especially in I mean, this is going to sound bad, but especially in the Middle East and Asia, um, like we are combating some serious anti-blackness in our communities. And, you know, when I, I just can't even explain to you, like I've gotten so many comments about 
Oh my God, you're Iraqi. Okay, so you understand this. When I was a baby, um, I was called Shagra by all our Iraqi neighbors. Like, because, I'm not even blonde. <laughs> like, I'm just but Shagra, like for certain Iraqis, it just means very pale, pale skin. Crazy. And because I'm this like very pale woman with very dark, you know, eyebrows and eyelashes and hair and whatever, I think the starkness of it in especially Asia, um, is, is like, we're so colonized, you know, we're Mm. so colonized to see that as beautiful. Mm. And I think it did what it did because I have this light skin privilege. And that's not to say that I didn't work really hard, you know, because whatever people are like, oh, you're giving too much credit to the whatever racial conversation, but it's true. It's real. And I see that and I see it at work in my life, you know, and, and it's, it's just a matter of fact. I, that resonates so much, Mona, because like, yes, I also work very hard in multiple facets and elements, but there's a bit of a wind beneath my wings because of there's the low bar edge. orientalism yeah. is set. And, and then, you know, the, Honestly, like probably a lot of it's also attributed to the privilege. You end up developing a certain type of confidence. You end up being able to speak a certain way and everything kind of ends up becoming a wind under your wings. But mm-hmm. the, the, the backstory, kind of the cost that it came at is heavy. It's big, right? Like, mm-hmm. And so I, I'm, fully, I'm fully in tune with that and I'm fully aware of it. Um, and so, so you finish this video. Are you like, okay, this is it. I'm doing this. I'm going to release a bunch more music like what happened after that um I would love to kind of round out the end of the story because it's fairly recent actually yeah it is um we we had a bunch of songs actually already in our pocket you know we were ready to go with the next few and I had a lot of sweet offers from people after that video to who wanted to work with me you know so on the next video I did um it was really cool because I went to the YouTube studios, which is which no longer exists, and you know we shot the video again for very low do- low budget dollars, <laughs> and it was cool, you know, to be able to shoot that in New York with like real professionals and to bring Drea Denour and to have her sing the hook was like a dream come true because I've been a fan since forever, and you know, and then Jackie Cruz, like I met her at a a fundraiser for Syria <laughs> at the wow. Cipriani Ballroom in New York. And she was like, hey, like, if you ever have a hook for me, I would love to sing on one of your songs. No. And I was like, what? Are you for real? <laughs> and she was like, yeah, definitely. And, you know, you just, like, God just brings people out of the woodworks. And so it was this beautiful thing of it just kind of flowed from that point. And, um, and then I had the blessing to go to L.A. and work with this – super dynamic duo producer um duo uh they're called um what is uh i can't remember what they go by right now oh move move uh, <laughs> this looks so bad um jb and Kuran Cole. <laughs> they are a, a duo of, of producers they they don't they're not making music right now which is why i can't remember what their um production team is called but um, JB reached out and he was like, hey, like, I really love your work. You know, if you ever want to record a full thing, like, come out and we got you. So I went to L.A. and, you know, they did. They helped me create the EP and 
that was when we shot the we, we I went back, we shot the barbarian video. I partnered with Tahre Mafi. She was the the kind of uh, art director, creative uh, backbone of that project, and we did that together, um, along with some other really dynamic um, all women. Uh, Fida Fida Aid, uh, she's styled many of my videos. Um, she did that one. She did Barbarian. So it's always a team effort, you know, of, of amazing people who come together to create these these works. And it's never just me, <laughs> you know, um, putting all this together. So, yeah, and and um, I know I've been quiet. People are constantly in my DMs asking me why I haven't put stuff out. And, you know, the reality is I, I felt quiet. And, um, and I have stuff that I would want to put out and do want to put out eventually. But I just believe in timing and, you know, timing things when they feel good and they feel right and preying on things and and not being swayed by the urgency of the world um i believe that you know a certain kind of urgency is violent and that you know you have to do things with grace and prayer hmm. it's a beautiful perspective and i'm curious um in terms of where people can kind of continue to follow your journey, where would you direct them to kind of figure out what's next with, with Muna? Yeah. <laughs> well, you, uh, you know, the answer. <laughs> no, um, you are part of that project. <laughs> oh, that's right. It's <laughs> hilarious. Oh, and Instagram, by the way, she definitely has an Instagram, but why don't you share the project? Yeah, so uh, my husband and I, Sebastian, we filmed a project together um, called The Great American Muslim Road Trip. And we started in Chicago and we went to Los Angeles and it's actually in post-production right now. Um, we traveled along historic Route 66 and stopped along the way and met some incredible people. Um, hung out with incredible Muslim communities, talked about Muslim contributions to the society. Um, and it should be out this spring. And it's going to be on PBS. That's right. Catch Mona on there with a cameo by me. That's right. <laughs> that was probably my favorite conversation that I had on the whole trip. I mean, okay. you were just I know. I couldn't believe you had just gotten off an airplane. That was amazing to me. <laughs> it was really good. We vibed immediately. And I was yeah. like, you need to come on my podcast, and here we are now. Um, <laughs> yeah, and just generally be friends. So alhamdulillah for that too. But uh, okay, cool. So we have that. We have Instagram, which I'm just going to plug for you. Um, where else can folks find you? <laughs> yeah, I'm the most Mona, um, M-O-N-A, um, on Instagram. And I'm, I'm not as active on there anymore as I used to be. But yes, here and there, I, I will post and share. Um. But yeah, it's it's fun times. I am not currently on any other social medias, so <laughs> makes it easy to find her. But yeah. that's awesome, um, Mona. Thank you so much for being on the show. I look forward to watching you on PBS this spring and, and watching you music, <laughs> <laughs> watching us on PBS this spring. And th thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks for having me. It was it was really sweet talking to you and learning more about your your story. 
yeah, it's wild that we're so similar, but I love it. I love everything I know. about it. it. It really makes a lot of sense. <laughs> right? <laughs> I, I definitely have the same, thinking the same thing. So, inshallah, yeah. I'll talk to you soon, Mena. You too.